I want to share uh, just three um, experiences from my life with you. Uh, when I was in the last two years of high school, uh, the same school that I shared with, um, with you last uh, week, uh, I decided to run a Christianity Explored with the, the kids in my year during lunchtime. Now, the only two uh, people to come to the course were the two self-proclaimed atheists in our um, class. Uh, and who I remember were very bright uh, people. Right? They got high marks in their studies. Uh, they were quite political at the time. And, uh, and they came. We watched the first video. And, uh, and they decided to ask me every uh, difficult theological and philosophical question that they could come up with. And the problem was they didn't come seeking... They came fighting, right? They came to disturb, to sneer, to jeer, to mock, to laugh at, right? That was their attitude as they were there, and to my great shame, it worked. I was discouraged, and we didn't continue anymore. I think I came up with some kind of lame excuse. But perhaps it was this point that I began to realize that not everyone likes the message of Christianity. Second story. When I worked with London City Mission, I, I wasn't a missionary. I was more akin to, to support staff. Uh, but we got to join in on the, on the ministry activities uh, of the mission. Uh, one activity I did a few times was street evangelism in Leicester Square in central London. And uh, it's where all the fancy cinemas are, and they do movie premieres there. Uh, but most nights, it's just a busy uh, thoroughfare of people walking past, enjoying the, the nightlife. And one of my experiences in that was a conversation I had with someone who had evidently read some parts of the Bible that I hadn't yet read, let alone study, let alone have an answer for. And I remember him saying to me, oh, you're one of those evangelical Christians. And I said, yes, not knowing what baggage that word might hold. But it was at that point what I received, what I recall was a rather vigorous verbal beatdown. Right? It was, it was brutal. Perhaps it was then that I began to understand that not everyone liked Christians, certainly, certainly the evangelical kind. A third experience I had was a few years later. I was on a short-term mission trip in Central Asia, in Tajikistan. Uh, it's a beautiful country, beautiful people, majority Muslim countries in Central Asia. And uh, we had spent a week at first in Kyrgyzstan and then uh, took a rather terrifying flight over the mountains. And I say terrifying for two reasons. One, the, um, the, the cockpit door kept randomly just flying open and banging uh, all the way throughout the flight. Um, but more unnerving than that was the, the ice that was forming on the inside um, over the air conditioning units on the inside of the plane. Um, if you're not a good flyer, that's a little bit... <laughs> That caused you to be nervous. Uh, anyway, we, we arrived in our destination. We had another three-hour drive uh, to go, running a youth camp. And uh, we're taking a short break at a rest stop on the side of the road. And at this point, a, a secret uh, police uh, had come over. Uh, they still called him the KJB at the time in Tajikistan. A very stern-looking man came over, and he spoke to our host. They took our passports and uh, wanted to know who we were, why we were there. And I remember the, the, the look on my friend's um, face, uh, the host's face, uh, he went from a, a very smiley, happy person to one who was terrified uh, very quickly. And the reason he was terrified was because he had been in the pleasure of their custody before. He had received beatings and warnings from them. I won't continue the story at this point. We were fine. God was with us that week, despite further checkups from the KJB. But perhaps it was at this point that I thought... 
we could actually get hurt for believing and proclaiming Jesus. Well, we're in a sermon series in the book of Acts. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen the gospel being proclaimed, uh, a crippled uh, beggar come to salvation and his broken body restored. We've seen large crowds turning to God in repentance through faith in the name of Jesus. And it's all been a rather exciting adventure as we've journeyed along with the early church. As we saw last week, however, it's not all smooth sailing. We discovered that persecution is a uniquely strange uh, bedfellow of the Christian life. You see, not everyone will see the Lord Jesus as the rightful king of the world. But the task of the Christian remains unchanged, to proclaim the resurrected Christ to all the world, to see the kingdom of God grow through disciples being baptized, established in the word, equipped to preach the gospel, so that the world of darkness may shrink back as Jesus reigns and puts all powers and authorities under his feet. And the wonderful thing is that God has not left us alone to accomplish his mission. Jesus' promise and declaration to his apostles and to the church is that he will be with us to the very end of the age. And that he has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in every believer, in every age, and in every place they reside, so that the kingdom of God will be present and will further proclaim the message of the kingdom. And so to every believer, he has given great resources to accomplish that mission. And so today we're going to see three gifts of God's grace to every believer that he has given us to aid us in that mission. He has given us, and if you're following along with your newsletter, the gift of prayer, the gift of great power, and the gift of possessions. Well, let's begin with the first, the gift of prayer. Now, before we enter into the specifics of the prayer and why prayer is a gift, notice in verse 23 what causes their prayer. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So their prayer is in response to a, to a great threat that is before them. The rulers have declared, no more preaching in Jesus' name. Stop or else. Now, the previous passage didn't quite highlight what or else meant Right? It didn't spell out what would happen if they kept on preaching. It just repeats that the apostles, Peter and John, were threatened. But I don't think it takes a lot of imagining for us. These same rulers were responsible for the sentencing of Jesus to death in the very same place these apostles are threatened. It's a grave threat. It's a threat of death. And if they did it to the master, as we saw last week, they would do it to the servants. So it's not a threat to take lightly. So verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Stop there. See, a great storm is upon the church as they have been threatened by the Sanhedrin. And so this church responds to this in prayer. But in this prayer, it's not every man, woman and child for themselves. Right? I, I, I've been in uh, prayer meetings where it's every man, woman, and child for themselves, everyone praying individually together, right? It's fun. It's chaotic, right? It's, it's fun. But that's not what's happening here. This is one prayer shared by the entire congregation of which all were able to say amen to. And everyone is submitting to and trusting God in their prayer as they raise their voice. Now, the NIV there gets voices wrong. It shouldn't be voices plural. It should be voice singular. And, um, and that's quite important. It's one voice. They pray together in one voice. All right? 
So keep reading from verse 24. Sovereign Lord, they said. So this is how they start their prayer. Sovereign Lord. Now, Lord there is an interesting word. It's not the usual word that is used for Lord. Kurios is the usual word. It means master or ruler. Rather, the word here is despotes. Right? And that's where we get our English word despot from. Right? That leader, is a, he's a despot leader. Right? It's a different connotation. It's a very different type of ruler. Uh, and it really has the force of a, of a slave owner, a slave master, that kind of ruler. Absolute, undeniable power. Now, why would they use that word when kurios has been their usual word? Well, I think they use that word because of the Sanhedrin, the, the early authorities and powers of Israel who have commanded that preaching in Jesus' name be stopped. But as we discussed last week, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. These rulers must submit to a, a, a different power, a different Lord, a greater Lord, whose authority cannot be challenged. But as we read all of the scriptures, we find out that he is a benevolent despot, right? Of course, God is not an abusive ruler. He is benevolent. He is compassionate. He is kind. And he alone knows what is best for his children. So in the battle for powers and authorities, this early church addressed the one who is master over all. Keep reading. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And we'll get to what our father David wrote in a moment. But one of the gifts of God's grace that we have as Christians is the gift of God's ear. Prayer reduced to its most basic form is that we can talk to God, but it's more than just talking to God. See, the most basic act of any relational communication is the back and forth between two people. But it doesn't begin with us. We're not the first ones to speak. God is. In the beginning was the Word. He is the one who spoke forth creation. The Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's the entire creation account, by the way, in one sentence. And so we pray to the Creator God who by His Word spoke first. He spoke creation into being. And so we pray in response to God's Word. And in this relationship, he is the creator, we are his creation, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, we are his servants. And yet by his grace, he invites us in to communicate with him. He first opens his mouth and speaks. He then opens his ear to hear us. And so in prayer, we speak to the God who has spoken first by his word. Look, you know, so many times in, in my work with, with young people or, or new believers, uh, getting them to pray can often be such a, a difficult task, right? I, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. And the main reason, other than just being shy, because being shy is a, that's a, that's a good reason, but the main reason, I think, is because people don't know God's Word. They don't know God's Word, so they don't know how to respond to His Word. And so we want to help people to pray according to God's word. As any relationship, communication doesn't happen in isolation. We respond to God speaking first to us. So Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And it's interesting when people read that verse because they often... Um, 
end up focusing on that second part, don't they? Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. But what's the, what's the first bit? God's word, right? Prayer is in response to God's word. So you will know what to ask for when you know God's word. And so the key to prayer is having God's word in us. Prayer and God's word are partners in ministry. God's word tells us what to do. And prayer equips our hearts to do it as in it we are reflecting and answering to his word. So let's see how they pray with God's word. After hearing all that has happened to Peter and John with the Sanhedrin, they pray using the words of David, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you see there the knowledge of God's word? That informed their prayer through their circumstances. Uh, here are the nations, here are the rulers and the people who plot together against Jesus. But they take comfort in the sovereign Lord and his word. These rulers did what God had ordained. They think they're in charge, but they're not. And God has graciously given us his ear. Let's use it. Let's not waste this great privilege. And look, there are many ways we can pray, and there are many things we can pray for. Let's see next what the early church prayed for during this great storm. Let's move to our next heading, the gift of power. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So there's three requests there. The first thing is that God would consider their threat. Related to that, that he would enable them to speak the saving word with great boldness. And thirdly, that he would continue by his hand, by his hand, to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. So let's start with the first, that God would consider their threats. To my mind, it is simply that. It's not a form of judgment. It's just that God would bear in mind their threats. That they're simply telling God what has happened and that he would take note of it. And notice that in that, they're not asking for easier circumstances or for the circumstances to be removed. Rather, sovereign Lord, in these threats, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Secondly, then, they asked God to empower them to make the best use of the circumstances that he had given them to accomplish his work. So not escape from trials, but enabling. Right? God, enable us to work through these trials, to speak with great boldness despite the threats. And thirdly, they pray to God to continue to show mighty acts of saving power. Now, once upon a time, John had asked Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy our enemies? They're going to stop us from proclaiming Jesus. Is that what they pray here? No. Not, not fire, but grace. God, stretch out your hand, not of judgment, but of grace. Grace this world in the name of Jesus through mighty acts of saving power. They are asking for the power of God to be among them, not destructive power, but saving power. 
and for themselves strength and boldness to withstand the arrows of the enemy, to stand strong against the roar of the prowling lion Satan, and to preach the name of Christ with power. You know, last week we quoted from Richard Vermbrand, and um, one of the things he said, I'm going to skewer this quote, I can't quite remember what he said, but it was in terms of looking at our enemies with the love of Christ, looking at them and going, this, this is my future brother, right? This person who's beating me and torturing me, that's my future brother. And having that um, look on them instead of anger or hatred or wanting destruction, no, you want the grace of God on them so they would become your brother in Christ. So here's the challenge for us. The early church does not pray for protection when persecuted. Instead, they pray for power. So let's not pray for easy lives. Let's pray to be stronger men and women. Let's not pray for easy tasks that we think are in our ability to handle, but instead let's pray for power equal to the tasks that God has given us. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, this is the third time that Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, when John, uh, Pastor John spoke on the filling of the Spirit at Pentecost, uh, he used that illustration of, of a ship, uh, ship sailing, that first gust of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that set the church in motion, and then of those ongoing gusts of wind. And we are in need, friends, aren't we, of those gusts of the Spirit of God throughout our ministries throughout the good works that God has called us to do. And what is the result of this Holy Spirit filling? That they would speak the word of God boldly. You see, that was Peter and John's answer to the Sanhedrin, wasn't it? That they would obey God over men. God is big. They're small. And now we see here that the church has the same conviction. No threat from the religious rulers will stop the name of Jesus from being proclaimed Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. We need this boldness today, don't we? Not a sanitized Christian faith of cultural acceptability, but a boldness that comes through the Holy Spirit as we humbly ask through this gift of prayer to pray according to the word for the continued proclamation of the word of God. And as we proclaim the gospel with boldness, people will come to see a marked difference in our lives. That mark, of course, being the power of the Holy Spirit who is changing us and transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Well, let's now move to our final heading and see the third gift of God's grace, a third resource that we have as Christians and an opportunity for us to be Christ-like and show that marked difference, the gift of possessions. Now, really, the final gift of God to the believer is primarily the church, right? Other believers, one another. Believing Christians filled with the powerful spirit of God who pray together with one mind, who have boldness to proclaim the gospel, but also a greater love for the kingdom of God than all the kingdoms of the world. Now, notice that not a lot has changed since Pentecost. Although Peter and John have been arrested, thrown in prison, tried by the highest court in the land, the church hasn't lost any of its passion from the first Pentecost. So verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. 
Right? We saw this exact same behavior at Pentecost. And now, at the very first storm to hit the church, nothing shifts, nothing changes. They are united in their love for God and their love for one another. Now, one of the ways we love each other is by meeting the needs of other Christians. The early church had a profound view of their possessions. Now, we need to understand what's going on here before we say anything else. In chapter 2, verse 47, we see that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. At this point, we don't have accurate numbers for the church, right? They started counting, but we've kind of lost count at this point, right? The, the church is growing, and not every new believer had need, but there were those who did. There were likely a number of converts who would travel to Jerusalem for festivals and feasts and for them to stay in Jerusalem, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread for an extended period of time. Well, that's going to come at great personal cost. So there is a need among believers who are staying behind in Jerusalem. And of the many who believed, we noted last week that there were possibly widows in that number, right? So, so they would have great need. There's also the need of those like the crippled beggar. Uh, No longer crippled, of course, but what about his begging? Surely he continued to have a great physical need. And that need was to be met by the abundance of blessing from among all of God's people. Now, one thing we must not do here is to confuse what is going on with a form of communism. And call it something like Christian communism, right? Friends, there's no such thing. Communism is a really evil force in our world. You see, communism says this. It says, what is yours is mine. No one is allowed to have more than their fair share. And so we're constantly looking what other people have and desiring that. And communism always ends up taking by force from others. That has always been the case. And by the way, there's two biblical commands against that, by the way. Don't steal. Don't covet. But Christian generosity says something different. It says, what is mine is yours. As we have received, we give. No one's taking anything from us. Rather, God in his goodness is giving us, not taking from us. You see the difference? It's recognizing the great gifts that we have from God to give. And so the idea here that no one claimed any of their possessions as their own is not the same as believers renouncing all their possessions, nor is it the same as the church as an entity forcibly taking their possessions from other believers. We know that because of what happens next week with Ananias and Sapphira. And we're going to read about that. John's going to be teaching on that next week. But there was clearly an understanding that what they owned was theirs to do with as they pleased. Rather, the attitude of the early church to their possessions was in response to the generous gift of God to them. Freely we have received, and so freely we give, so that no one among the body was without need. Verse 34, there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So these were voluntary actions by individuals who themselves experienced the grace of God and the Spirit of God moving their hearts and hands to be generous among the church. Not everyone sold everything. See, from time to time as needs arose. 
When the assembly of believers needed something, the Spirit of God, through the faithfulness of individual believers, released possessions to fill the need. Now, we want to be careful about some principles here. Firstly, I am not an apostle. Please don't sell your homes and lay them at my feet. Now, I say that somewhat jokingly, but there are people in the world today who claim the title of apostle and who misuse texts like these for great personal benefit. Secondly, the needy persons here are not outsiders, right? They are first and foremostly Christians who have come to Christ. They are people who have understood their sin, they've repented, they've entered the kingdom as citizens. But wouldn't the kingdom of God be a sad place if many of our brothers and sisters who had experienced the grace of God that we've experienced were walking around the kingdom with great physical need that could be met in an instant by the body of believers. Thirdly, what is being described here is a spirit of giving. We're not being prescribed how to give. There's no tithe percentage. There isn't a tax on wealth. There's no negative talk about those who had great possessions. Rather, the Holy Spirit is at work among all the believers, and giving has become a blessing, not a burden. And so it's our great privilege to give to brothers and sisters who are in need. And because of their unity, people were more important than possessions. Now, next week, John's going to cover the very interesting story of Ananias and Sapphira uh, and their greed and their hypocrisy and their lying. And in that, John's going to share some principles uh, from giving from Scripture because there are buts involved. Right? It's, not, it's not as simple There are buts involved when it comes to supporting others. Uh, For example, the Christian who is able to work but refuses to work is not to be supported by the church. Because what they're doing is they're refusing to use the gifts that God has given them. And therefore, what they are doing, excuse me, is they are taking from the kingdom rather than giving to the kingdom. You see? So John's going to speak into that a little bit more next week. But here now we have an example of... For us of Christian generosity from one individual. Look at verse 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So lastly, we're introduced to Barnabas. It's the son of encouragement. We're being given a particular insight into just one man in the church who was very, very generous. And he was, as his name suggests, a great encouragement to the church. And he's mentioned no less than 25 times in the rest of the New Testament. And he is someone who not only shared the limelight with Paul in the preaching of the gospel and the planting of churches, but he was also a servant to the church and its leaders. And he spent time out of the limelight discipling people faithfully like John Mark. Now, we're introduced to Barnabas here very briefly, and I think one reason we're told about Barnabas is to compare him with Ananias and Sapphira next week. And he shows us what a generous attitude is like, whilst Ananias and Sapphira show us what greed and hypocrisy is like. Now, it's interesting to note that Barnabas here is a Levite. Levites were of the priestly class of Israel. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. And Levites were not given any land when the land was distributed in uh, Joshua chapter 13. Uh, and the reason they're not given any land is because as Joshua 13:33 says, 
God would be their inheritance, right? So they're not given any land. Instead, God would be their inheritance. Now, they could own property. They just couldn't own the land. And the law of God had made provisions for the Israelites to provide for the needs of the Levites through tithes and through giving as they gave their lives serving the people. Now, for some reason, Barnabas owns land. Whether that's because the religious leaders had turned a blind eye or whether he had owned land outside of Israel, he's from Cyprus, but whether that makes a difference according to Scripture, I'm not quite sure. But what we read here is nonetheless the result of the Spirit of God at work in this individual. He sold his field and the proceeds given and the proceeds, excuse me, given directly to the work of the apostles and ministry among the people. Now, 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9 would be a really helpful read here if you want to follow up more on this. But very briefly, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 to 8, See that you excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing with the earnestness of others. Well, who are the others that Paul was talking about there? He was talking about the churches in Macedonia. They were persecuted. They were poor. Yet, they were extremely generous. So again, Paul's not commanding giving. There is grace here, but he wants to test their sincerity. If poor and persecuted Christians can give, why can't you? Uh, Something that sticks so clearly in my mind, Dawn and I used to go on uh, yearly mission trips to uh, Lesotho. We actually never went together. She kind of went before we even met and were married, and then I started uh, going and uh, so we've got some mutual friends there who are missionaries. Uh, they planted a church among the villages there. And it's a really wonderful service uh, to be a part of. And the service lasts the whole day, right? None of this coming to church for an hour nonsense, right? Lasts the, the whole day. And, uh, and many of the folks are traveling by foot one to two hours from the various uh, uh, villages uh, across the, the mountains. And... Um, there's great singing, there's testimony, uh, there's preaching of the word, uh, and at the end we all share a, a, a meal together. But there is a point near the end of the service where they've got uh, two giving boxes at, at the front. Uh, one for local ministry among the, the villages, and one for international ministry, for global missions. Right? So they've clearly marked it out, this box is for that, this box is for, for this. And part of their worship service is to give, right? It's not for show, but at the end, people will come up and they'll, and they'll put money into which box they um, want to give to for that week. And look, I'm always so touched by that because these are people who have, in a very real sense, nothing. They've got nothing. Um, and yet, there they are, giving to global missions. Prayer. Power. Possession. The work of the Holy Spirit is among us. Giving is a blessing. We pray and we ask for God for power to do His work. These are hallmarks of the Christian church. They receive from the living God a direct line through the Word of God and through prayer. God had given them great grace and power to live exceptional lives among the people with bold preaching despite the grave threats and with great generosity, giving to those who had need. And these three, three great resources that God has given to you and to me to make his name great among the world, we have those. And so the question stands before us today, how are we utilizing these gifts? 
Are we digging up holes in the sand and burying them? Or are we by faith using them? So very briefly, let's, let's just go through them. Let's start with prayer. It's important to note what drove them to prayer, threats of persecution. The early church never lost any of its passion from the first Pentecost to the second filling of the Holy Spirit, despite the various serious uh, threat leveled at them. And so they respond to God in prayer. So what are we to do when threatened, when persecuted, when under trial, whether that's in sharing our faith or whether that is Satan trying to discourage us through other means? And here's what I mean by that. Remember last week how I told you how Satan is the key figure in these next few chapters, right? Last week was the external threat of Satan through the religious leaders. Next week, it's an internal threat in the church through Ananias and Sapphira. And then we're going to return to this theme of generosity in the church and the forming of deacons, servants. Why were they formed? Because Satan, in his dastardly schemes, uses the Christian's generosity to prevent the preaching of the gospel. And so this passage helps us to answer that question. What do Christians do when under trial? We pray accordingly with the word of God on our lips. And the challenge for us, I think, is to make sure that we are doing, that what we are doing requires us to pray. Uh, that requires us to be going to God and relying on him. Uh, because we know it to be true, don't we, that when things go well, we forget God. When things go bad, we quickly run to God and maybe in that we're cheeky enough to ask God, uh, why is he letting these things happen to me? Well, maybe as a reminder for us to rely on him, the sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the fish and the sea, the birds and the sky, of whom he knows every single one. As churches in Wagga, we're planning for John Dixon to be here next year with some evangelistic messages. Let's be praying for that. Be great if someone in the church would um, like to see that as that particular, as their particular ministry over the coming year. Uh, to organize prayer meetings for the church and to invite other churches to come and pray with us. Now, of course, related to prayer is what they asked for, and that was great power to do what God has given them to do. Friends, let's not forget that we have not been saved to live our lives like the lost. We live to proclaim life to the dead. Perhaps we ought to pray for that passion. Oh, may the Spirit of God fill us mightily and equip and enable us to use the freedoms we have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Remind me, what's today, what's today called that we are? Uh, religious today is Religious Freedom Day, and I didn't actually plan to talk about this, um, but uh, we've been encouraged as churches to, to be praying through this, that our governments, our leaders in charge, would consider heavily the freedoms of the church, that we might continue to proclaim the gospel, even that, even if in that there are some uncomfortable messages for the world. We need to pray for that boldly. And the Spirit of God fill us to be single-mindedly devoted to that great cause. And then let us look around to one another. Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another it's no good us being bold and preaching the gospel and having those very difficult conversations if the church then looks uh, the world then looks at the church and we actually don't like each other right and firstly as Christ forgave you that you forgive those in the church who you believe might have wronged you and secondly as Christ has been generous with you likewise be generous with others in this church 
Let's think about our missionaries. Let's think about future missionaries from this church. Isn't that exciting? We might have some future ministry, uh, missionaries uh, leaving our church. Another opportunity for us to partner with the gospel going to the world. That's why it's a blessing to give. Now to end, when we arrive at ought statements, right, things that we ought to do as Christians, right, we ought to pray, we ought to um, pray for power, and we ought to uh, uh, give, um, it's, it's important that we look to Christ um, because we can't do this by ourselves. We can't do these things without God's help. We need to look to Jesus as our leader. You'll notice that this passage calls Jesus the Holy Servant three times. The Holy Servant. He is the one and only one who could serve the despot God perfectly. He is the one who went to his death that our sins would be forgiven. As the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by his blood, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Our loving, gracious, and heavenly Father, thank you for this extended time in your word this morning. I know I've gone on a little bit, Father. We do pray that you would be speaking to us through your word, that we might come to it and find in it hope and life. That as you speak to us, as you tell us how we can serve you, how we can live for you, that we would respond well in prayer because your word is in our hearts and that it would automatically come out of our lips as we declare your praises. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us, that we would be living Christian lives that require us to come to you in prayer. We don't, no one likes threats, persecution. No one wants to be persecuted. But Lord, you did promise that your disciples, your Christians, would face persecution for the proclamation of the gospel. So Lord, we pray against comfortable lives. We don't want comfortable lives. We want faithful lives. And Lord, as we live faithfully to you, may we pray for great boldness and power. And thank you that you give us that power. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be generous not hoarding, not being greedy, but seeing the needs of one another in this church, seeing the generosity that you have given us, and out of that generosity, giving. In your name we pray. Amen.